Okay, I think we're going to get rolling. Thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, we are we are about to start on a journey that I think is going to be super fun for 2019. Uh, we're basically going to do a study of all of systematic theology. We're going to do all the doctrines pretty much throughout the entire year of 2019, starting this tonight, the next couple weeks, with the Word of God. Uh, by the time we get all your booklets together, I mean, you're going to have your own, okay, your own systematic theology that you will have worked through from cover to cover. Now, hopefully you all got your book. Did everybody get a book? Okay. Uh, online, on the website, it has listed like which chapters fit into which sections. For the next three weeks, it's the first seven chapters. You really can read them in almost whatever order you want, but the first seven chapters of this book will be some of the content that we'll be covering here. Now, part of me wanted to give you, I have some really, I have some favorites when it comes to systematic theology books, but they're 1,300 pages. So instead, I gave you one of these to read, and we get to read it all year. I think we can all do that, right? One year, we can do that in a year. All right, so that's the goal. So I give you a medium-sized book at medium-level difficulty. I think we can all do it together. So your homework is the first seven chapters over the course of the next three weeks. So we're starting with God's Word, and we're starting with God's Word because if we don't understand the foundation of the Christian faith being in God's Word, then we really have a hard place, we don't have any place to go. So we're going to start there. Uh, so what I'd like to do is pray, and then we're going to jump into it. Father, I thank you so much that you are here with us. I thank you that this is uh, your spirit who's growing us and your word that's giving us direction. Uh, so God, we pray that you be here with us during this time and guide every word and guide our hearts. Uh, we look forward to meeting with you. In Christ's name, amen. So we're on chapter three, session one. Uh, tonight we're going to do a lot of information. Sometimes these classes are a little bit more inspirational, sometimes more informational. Tonight's going to be a lot of informational stuff, and we're going to be moving at a pretty good pace. A couple times I'm going to jump over stuff just because of time. If I jump over something, don't get nervous. Okay, it's okay. You can it's there for you to read on your own. Okay, so that's going to happen multiple times throughout our different books. We're going to jump over parts that you can do on your own. Uh, we're going to start with the doctrine of inspiration. Inspiration means that it's God-breathed, the verbal, plenary inspiration of the original manuscripts. The main verse that probably all of you know, or most of you know, is 2 Timothy 3.16, where it tells us that the Word of God is literally God-breathed. God-breathed. Okay? That's a, a wonderful picture. He basically breathed these words out onto these pages. They are His words. So, when you interact with God's Word, you are interacting with God. Catch that. When you are interacting with God's Word, you are interacting with the Lord Most High. So it's a beautiful thing, and it's a weighty thing. So to go into God's Word is to spend time in God's presence. So I've had people I've talked to and counseled who just feel like God is distant. And we've probably all been there where we feel like God's distant. One of the best ways to feel connection with God again is to open His Word. Those are his words. If you feel like he's not speaking to you, maybe because you're not reading what he said. Okay? So God's word is where we go and where we run to meet with God. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. Uh, Jesus there says that he hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he goes on to say that the word of God is authoritative and is eternal. He says, every stroke of the pen, so every dot of the I, every crossing of the T, will still be remaining even when the world comes to an end. 
Okay? The Word of God is eternal and it's authoritative. This is interesting. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, I'll go ahead and read it. It says, Even every single letter from the Old Testament is a basis for the New Testament. Verse 16 says this, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into his seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. So Paul references Genesis chapter 12, and the fact there is that he's only referencing seed, not seeds. So a single letter makes a huge difference, and Paul acknowledges that. And because one letter was not used, it changes the whole trajectory of our theology of that verse. Because it says seed, it means it's pointing to Jesus. If it said seeds, it would have meant something totally different. Okay? So we even have to acknowledge that every letter makes a difference in the Old Testament. Every letter matters. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Would somebody mind looking that up real quick for me? I'd love to hear that one. If somebody else could look up Isaiah 55, and we'll just do verse 11 of Isaiah 55. So Hebrews 4.12. If somebody gets there, if you could read it for me. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Awesome. So I think we can get to the place where we buy into the fact that the words on these pages are God's. But that verse takes another step. It says that these words don't just live on pages. They're living and they're active. And they go into your life and they begin to check out your intentions. They look at your motives. It talks about it going all the way down to the marrow of your bone. So when you interact with God's words, like you're interacting with a scalpel. Okay, it's like you're interacting with a scalpel. It tests and tries and looks at every aspect of who you are. It's powerful. It's active. It's living. Isaiah 55, 11. Can somebody read that for me? Awesome. So we read before that it's living and active. Here there's this description that the Word of God goes forth and it accomplishes what God has for it. So if you're a king, how does that happen? You send forth chariots and cavalry and bowmen and spears. God sends forth His Word. His Word goes forth and it does what He seeks for it to do. It accomplishes all that He intends. So the Word of God is a powerful thing. It's a living thing. It's an active thing. So the more you interact with it, the more you are changed. Spirit-led, 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So as the Word of God came into being, it was done in and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Men led by the Holy Spirit. So the doctrine of inspiration tells us that every word in here is God's, and it will meet the needs and the intentions that God put it on the page for. It could even be he put it on that page sometimes for your heart to change your way of thinking, your intentions, your motivations. When we interact with God's word, we interact with something powerful, something living. We're interacting with God himself. So as we discuss everything else tonight, we're going to go into some hard stuff like how the, how the word was translated and transmitted and kind of how things work and some things are hard and some things are easy. Regardless, this remains true. What you have in front of you is intended to be in front of you by God Almighty. 
Okay? Methods of inspiration. So, God did not use mechanical dictation. In other words, God didn't just put someone into a trance and basically put his hand on top of their hand and then write on scrolls the word of God. He didn't do it that way. As you go to page 4, at the top, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So he didn't just use one way of transmitting his word, having his word written. He used many ways. Uh, the first bullet point says that times the Lord simply spoke and the author was to dictate. You know those passages that say, thus saith the Lord, and then they wrote it down. Okay? Sometimes it was just a dictation thing. Other times, the author is called to compile and to research and to determine an intention for why he's writing the book. Luke takes the time in his gospel to compile information and to select passages to write into the book of Luke so that he can give an account to this guy named Theophilus. John, in the Gospel of John, says he writes in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So he picks certain parables and not other ones. He picks certain miracles and not other ones. He picks certain teachings and not other ones with a purpose in mind. We believe that God ordained that purpose. God worked in and through Paul and John and Luke and Matthew and James in such a way as to accomplish his will, his desire, through personalities, through intentions, through goals, through the compiling of research. Uh, the Lord even does this to, to John in the book of Revelation. He says, write on the scroll what you see. Do you remember that? So John tries to do it. Remember how that worked out? He's like, well, it's kind of like this. And maybe it's a little bit like that. Uh, his face is shining like the sun. His voice is like rushing waters. His feet are like bronze. I mean, it's at the point where he doesn't even have human language to use to describe what he's seeing. Okay? But he's called to write on the scroll what he sees. And God works through that. Uh, in John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, John goes out of his way to describe that he is an eyewitness. And he's basically testifying. He's simply telling us what he has seen what he has heard. He even goes so far as to say, and what he has touched. Okay? I knew Jesus. I knew the word. I touched him. I listened to him. I saw him. So let me tell you what he's like. Okay? So he uses eyewitnesses. Charles Ryrie here has a really good quote. It says, to sum up, this variety of material demonstrates that God sometimes revealed things supernaturally and directly. Sometimes he allowed human writers to compose his message using their freedom of expression. But he breathed out the total product, carrying along the authors in various ways to give us his message in the words, the Bible. Okay, so no matter what method he used, the outcome was the same. God breathed his words with his intention to accomplish his goals. Okay, so now we have to ask the question, how did those original words that Moses wrote, that Isaiah wrote, that Paul wrote, that John wrote, how did they get from those original manuscripts to what you're holding in your hands? Okay, so this is the topic of transmission, how to go from there to here. So this part of the conversation is taken from this book, which is excellent. Okay, I have, the, I have it written down right there. So if you want to look at it afterwards, I'll keep it up here and you can look at this book. It does a really good job walking through how it went from the original text to the translation you have in your hand. So sometimes I think we over-spiritualize this. 
According to Exodus chapter 17, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book. So there was a book, and God told Moses, Write this down. Okay? We also see during this time there's oral transmission. So, there is a book. We see this book being written in over and over again throughout the Old Testament. We'll point to more examples. But also in the background, there's a lot of people who can't read. Okay, literacy then is different than literacy now. And also, there, weren't, there wasn't a printing press. So if you wanted a copy of something, I couldn't just drop it in your email. I couldn't run it off a printing press and give you a copy. So oral tradition was a big part of this. They would memorize tremendously large portions of scripture and pass it down from generation to generation. But also there was writing taking place. Okay, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses would record God's words, and then the priests were in charge of preserving those words. And they were in charge of reading those words out loud. Okay, uh, as we go to the next page, Joshua 24, verse 26. So when Moses died, what happened? Was the book no longer accessed? Was it over? Was the recording of Scripture done? It says here, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law. 1 Samuel 10, 25 records Samuel wrote down the ordinances of the kingdom in the book. Prophetic oracles were also recorded. We see multiple verses where we see the prophecies are being recorded in Scripture as they're being given. So in the Old Testament, we have eyewitnesses writing down what they're seeing. Okay? They watched this, and God said, write it down, and they did. They would hear prophecies, and He'd say, write them down, and they did. And then they would read them aloud. So if there was something inaccurate, the whole crowd of people would have known because they were eyewitnesses of something that just happened. Like, there isn't a better way to keep track of history. This is the best way to keep track of history. All right? Eyewitnesses write down what happened. They read it out loud, and everybody agrees. Yes, that is what happened. Okay? So this is a... So there's a spiritual aspect to this, but there's also God showing a very, in a very practical way, I did this the right way. I made sure this was done correctly, and it was done well. Histories are also recorded by the prophets. This last point is really interesting in Daniel 9.2. It says, at this point, there seems to be a collection of books available to Daniel. Daniel, in this verse, opens up Jeremiah. He's in Babylon. He's not even in Israel. He's in Babylon, and he has access to the scrolls of Jeremiah. So already, at this point, there's already a compilation of books taking place. And people have them, and they open them up, and they read them. Okay? So it's not just that they're all in the Ark of the Covenant at this point. Okay? At this point, there is access for people to multiple books of the Old Testament. We see Daniel reading them right there. Now, so we see people writing and recording the whole way through. The scribes were called to preserve the text. The scribes were called to preserve the text. So God would use different people in different ways to write the text, and the scribes were in charge of preserving the text. This became more difficult over time. So, in Israel, we call them the Hebrews, and they spoke Hebrew, right? When they wrote their Hebrew, they wrote it all with capital letters, no vowels, and oftentimes no spaces between the words. Yeah. Imagine what that would be like. Just imagine that in English, okay? Take out all the vowels, put them all in capital, squish them all together. You're going to have a hard time figuring out what's what. Now, that's just the way they did it. If that's all you had ever known, Okay, you would probably be able to do it. But since you've never done that, it will be very difficult for you. So, 
as the Old Testament is coming to a close in Nehemiah and Ezra, people are starting to speak Aramaic. So people are speaking Hebrew less and less, and Aramaic is starting to come through and become the dominant language. So even as Nehemiah wants to have the books of the Old Testament read aloud, he starts having a hard time finding people who can even read the books because everyone's speaking Aramaic. Okay, so things are starting to get difficult. The rabbis were in charge of keeping the knowledge alive. Here, Jesus and the Jews, in his day, they are already fully speaking Aramaic. And now another language is coming through. Greek culture and Greek language is now starting to sweep through. Okay, so we have to keep up with this in our transmission. So at the bottom there, it says, scribes would have been commissioned starting around 500 BC with preserving Israel's sacred texts. They used papyrus, they used leather scrolls. If you look in Jeremiah 36, it says over and over again, take a scroll and write on it. Take a scroll and write on it. So this is starting to happen. Let's talk about the Masoretes. These people are scribes, and they play a very, very important role for us. What they did is they added vowels, and they added spacing, they added accents, they added floating letters between 500 and 800 AD, so that the way that we spoke and the words that were written in the Old Testament wouldn't be lost. I mean, they played a key role. So here's, so here's a Hebrew Bible, okay? We would open books this way. Hebrew Bibles actually, like Genesis is on this side because you do it, it's backwards. Now, in here, you'll see spaces. And if you're up close, I know most of you can't see this, there'd be little dots all around the Hebrew letters. The Masoretes are the ones who put all those dots there. And if you have two dots, it sounds like an ah. If you have one dot, it sounds like an eh. Depending on how many dots you have determines what it sounds like, okay? So they're able to preserve for us how these, like what these words actually are and how to say them. This is interesting. What's that? Is it? It's a consonant. It's a consonant. It's a consonant and it's a consonant. They never spoke the word out loud. So we really have no idea how they said that. Have you heard the term Jehovah? Jehovah. Have you heard Yahweh? That's Yahweh. It's both. So depending on whether or not you stick an E in here or an A, you stick an A in here, if you put an E in there, it changes the way it sounds. It goes into Jehovah. If you put an A in there, it sounds like Yahweh. Okay? You could also say Hihwa. Okay? There's like 13 different ways you could potentially say this. Now we've just settled on one. So it's that way we don't have the discussion every time we use the word, but we don't know which vowels go in that word. And it's fine. We know it's God's name and we know that it's holy. We just know when we say it, we're not totally sure if we're saying it correctly. Okay? So that's just interesting. Any questions about that? Okay, so that's what it looks like. So luckily they did say the other words out loud so they can put the correct vowel points in so we know how to say a lot of those things. So, the Masoretic Hebrew text was meticulously hand-copied until the invention of the printing press. So, these folks would sit for hours and hours and hours and would copy one copy of Isaiah into a second copy of Isaiah. They would have the original copy and they would get checked. They would go 25 lines down, 
30 letters over. Then you go this one, 25 lines down, 30 letters over. If it's a different letter, this gets destroyed and you start over. Does that make sense? They're meticulous. And if you mess it up, it's God's holy word. You start over. The standard is holiness, perfection. So that was the expectation of transmitting it. Okay? It's a big deal. So, so it was written by eyewitnesses. It was read in the community so everybody could validate that it was correct. And then this is how meticulous they were to make sure that it was being transmitted correctly along the way. I mean, God took care of his word, didn't he? God took care of his word. This was his intention and his method. It's beautiful. Now, here's something that maybe doesn't feel quite as beautiful. <clears throat> the present day chapters and verses in the Old Testament weren't even added until the 1200s. And they weren't added to the Hebrew text. They were added first to the Latin text. 1200s. So in 1150 AD, there was no Genesis 1-2. There was no Ezra 26-5. There, there weren't those. It was just Genesis, the book of Genesis. Exodus, the book of, Je of Exodus. Okay, so that came later. In 1330 is when the Hebrew text received chapters and verses. And we would not say the chapters and verses are inspired. The words are inspired. The verses and where they're located are not necessarily inspired. In fact, as Matt preps for teaching and I for, for preaching and I prep for teaching, there's oftentimes, especially in the New Testament, where you're like, why did he put that number there? Because it's like in the middle of a sentence. Like it's in the middle of something that seems like it should go together, but he just put a number there. Okay, I'm glad God didn't ask me to do it because I would have done it completely wrong. But sometimes you look at it and you're just confused and you read a commentary and they're like, yeah, we don't know why he did that either. Okay, because in the New Testament that happened as well. So translations. So we had the Hebrew. This is where we started, right? We had the Hebrew. And then after the Hebrew, we had this thing. It's called the Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of this Hebrew Old Testament. Here's something that's interesting. Throughout the New Testament, 80% of the time when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, they quote it from the Greek. They don't quote it from the Hebrew. Jesus does the same thing. Oftentimes, Jesus quotes from the Greek version, not the Hebrew version. Why? I don't know. So, no one can say the Hebrew version is inspired and the Greek version is not inspired. Because we see New Testament authors going back and forth between the two with no problem. Okay? So, one's not sacred and the other one's anathema. They're both used by God for his purposes. I have no explanation for it. I just want you to know about that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right, New Testament transmission. So, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. Again, we're told that they are eyewitnesses to what they have seen. Peter's writing out what he has seen. And he also says out loud, we're not following clever tales. We're not making stuff up. We're writing down what we've seen and what we've heard. We've already read 1 John 1, 1 through 3, and it's the same thing. I touched it. I saw it. I heard it. That's what I'm writing to you. You can trust me because I'm an eyewitness, just like the Old Testament. Eyewitnesses accounts. New Testament, eyewitness accounts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. That's where Paul just kind of summarizes the gospel. You know, that Jesus you know, died on the cross, buried three days, rose from the dead. He just simplifies the gospel. He says that these are words that he has received. And he's passing it along to them. Paul didn't sit down and God didn't inspire Paul to write those words. Paul actually heard those somewhere else and put them into the text as inspired. 
Okay, interesting. 2 Timothy 2.15, it says this, Be diligent to present yourself as proof to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handling or diligently handling the Word of God. So the call there is that when you have God's Word, you are to handle it accurately. You're to be diligent. You're supposed to work hard to make sure that you're teaching what it says, okay? And you're adhering to it, that you handle it correctly. So, something else that's interesting. I think sometimes people think that Matthew is the first book because it was the first book written in the New Testament. And then Mark probably was the second book written, so it went second. That's not at all how it's lined up. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would have been written probably decades after the letters of Paul. Decades after the letter of Paul. Okay, so the letters of Paul would have come very, very soon. All right, but the Gospels will come a little bit later. So, when someone comes up to you, and they will, they will. They'll come up to you and they're going to challenge God's Word. They're going to say, do you really believe that fiction? Do you believe those fairy tales? You can say with confidence, there is no other book on the planet that has been as meticulously taken care of from the moment it historically happened to the, the moment that is in my hands than the Bible. First-hand accounts clarified, and the community said, yes, that's what happened. And then it was transmitted meticulously with diligence being handled correctly from the moment it happened till today. There is no other book on the planet at the level of the Bible in terms of being able to trust it, even if you don't believe in God. All right, so don't let people push you around. Don't let people push you around, okay? It's God's word. He took care of it. All right, so you can trust it. At the bottom, it says, it should be one of the Jews taught. This is, this is good. So I must go off of it for a second. So the Jews of the day were used to memorizing large portions of Scripture. That's just something that they did. That passed down from generation to generation. Jesus knew that a lot of the people who were listening probably couldn't read and write. And he also knew that a lot of them weren't sitting in the back with their scrolls, writing out their scrolls as he was doing the Beatitudes, right? Like he was just talking. So he taught in such a way that was memorable. He used hyperbolic speech. What's hyperbolic speech? Exaggerated speech, okay? So when he says, pluck your eye out, Okay, all of you have probably done things where you should pluck your eye out. Everyone has. Or cut your hand off, we've probably all done something. But you all have two eyes. I think you all have two hands because we know that Jesus is speaking in exaggerated speech so you won't forget his point. Okay? He talks about prayer, moving mountains, prayers of faith, moving mountains. I never have gone, no, I've been in West Virginia now for a year and a half. I've never seen a Christian just going, I want it over there. <laughs> like, Christians are not out there changing topography, right? Like, that's not actually happening because he's speaking symbolically, figuratively, but it's something that you always remember. Okay, he says in such a way that you'll always remember. His parables have punchlines. If you understand the context and where he's going, you'll always remember it because of the punchline. It's like a great joke. You just remember the joke because you remember the punchline. That's how Jesus used parables. He was a master teacher, the greatest to ever live. So, as the Gospels are being written, all right, People are talking about the teachings of Jesus. There's an oral component to it, just like from the Old Testament. And these teachings are being passed along. And they're being passed along easily because he was such a great teacher. Uh, let's talk about... Look, already erased. Let's talk about the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very similar to one another. Okay. 
we're about to talk about several things that sometimes can shake believers' faith. Okay, we're going to talk about several things that sometimes can shake believers' faith. Sometimes, I think, churches keep this stuff behind the curtain. They don't want you to know about this. I'm going to open up the curtain, and we're going to talk about the, talk about the fact of how information was shared between these individuals to come up with conclusions in the compiling of God's Word. And we already know that it's God's Word. Like I said at the beginning, no matter what we talk about here, all of this is God's Word 100%, and we can trust it. So, we have Matthew. We have Luke. It looks like Mark was the first one written. It looks like Mark was the first one written. It's the shortest, but when you look at the, the content of it, it actually has more detail. And the things that it does speak on is longer than in the other books. And it looks like Luke and Matthew both took aspects of Mark. There's many passages that are identical in all three or really, really close. But there's 250 verses that are shared by Matthew and Luke that aren't in Mark. So it appears that there's another document. There is no official name to this document. We're making this up. But it's usually referred to as Q. And it looks like this Q, okay, which, why the word Q? The word quell, I think it's in German, means source. So all it means is there's a source that these two authors use to help them put together their information. There's also material that's unique to Matthew. Matthew didn't just make it up. He probably got it from somewhere. It probably included oral tradition, but he got it from somewhere. Luke had a whole bunch of unique material. Like as we went through the book of Luke, it was amazing how many of the miracles and parables were unique only to Luke. Luke may have been there for most of it, but there's also the likelihood that he was compiling information from additional sources. So even though they used sources that maybe weren't considered scripture, the moment God called them to use it, it's considered scripture. Okay? This doesn't take it any less than God's word because of the way that it was compiled. But it was compiled. The beginning of the book of Luke, he says he basically put together this information for a reason to share and describe what Jesus did and what he was like to Theophilus. So this is one of the theories of kind of how the Synoptic Gospels came to be what they are. The Synoptic Theory. Okay. All right. So, like the Old Testament, I'm on page seven at the top. Like the Old Testament, there are no autographs of the New Testament. So, we don't have any original copies of Isaiah. We don't have any original copies of the book of Hebrews. We don't have any like, we only have a single word on a single piece of page that we know for sure is original. That's probably a good thing. Okay, it's probably a good thing. In medieval times, there was this hoax going around that someone had found the cross that Jesus had died on. And I can't remember if it was the church or what, but they were cutting little pieces of wood and selling it for tons of money because people want a little piece of the cross that Jesus died on. Can you imagine if we found what we thought was the Word of God? It would just become something that sat in a museum and got collected and paid a lot of money for. Like, we would misuse it. And oftentimes, as Christians, I love to say that we never make mistakes, but likely we would start to worship the thing rather than the one who wrote the thing. We'd start worshiping that, that letter, that fragment, instead of worshiping God himself. So in God's wisdom, there are no autographs. There are no original copies. Um, <clears throat> so the Gospels were circulated orally for a period of time, while Paul's letters were recorded at the outset. 
And Paul oftentimes used like chain letters. So he'd write to the Philippians, and then he wanted the Philippians to write and send the letter on to additional churches. So there was, it was being copied immediately. So Paul's letters went from one letter to many, many letters very, very quickly. Okay? Very quickly. By the time the Gospels were written, there were probably dozens and dozens and dozens of copies of Paul's different letters. Um, so, okay, so we're going to start talking about some, some harder stuff. Um, at this point, we have thousands of manuscripts and little pieces of parchment, and we call them minuscules, where it has like a couple verses on it, minuscules, of different parts of the New Testament. Thousands, okay? Not four, not five, thousands. So what happened is, as, it went, as the letter of Paul went to like the Byzantines, and went to the West, and went to Alexandria, and went to different aspects of the world, it was rewritten over and over and over and over again. Have you ever played the telephone game? How's that usually go? Not great, right? So which, which person is usually most accurate? The person closest to where it started or the one farthest away? Closest, okay. So through the centuries, what we've had to do is we've had to take all the different minuscules and manuscripts and letters and portions of letters and basically rate and figure out which ones are trustworthy and which ones aren't. Okay, so we didn't take the original manuscript and just copy it into the translation in English that you have. Like we've actually had to go through and figure out which ones make the most sense to fit in. They're called variations. There are actual variations, okay? Let's jump ahead for a second. Okay, so we're about, just I'm gonna warn you, we're gonna go full on nerd here for about four or five minutes, all right? Indulge me. If you wanna turn your brain off for four or five minutes, I will wake you back up in four or five minutes. This may not interest you at all, but I want you to know this because I want you to be surprised by this. This is something that I watched several students at seminary hear for the first time and it rocked their world and it shook their faith. Okay? I don't want this to rock your world. I don't want this to shake your faith. I think we can grow from this. I think God's word is exactly the way he intended it to be. So, <clears throat> on page nine, there's a copy, just a page out of this right here, this is the New Testament in Greek. If you notice at the bottom of that page, okay, there's a bunch of little symbols and letters. What those are is you'll see a number, like you'll see 28. And if you go up to 28, you'll see a little symbol that, that's represented in the verse, then also down below the verse, in what's called the critical apparatus. Yep, that's what it's called, the critical apparatus. And what it shows you there is it shows you the different variants that could be there. It shows you the different variants that could be there. And all those little letters are the different manuscripts and fragments and minuscules that we have on record. Again, there's thousands of them. And they're just listed there. Okay? So, if you go to the next page, this would be something that... So I just copied this out of one of my papers. I got an A on this paper. I knew you wanted to know I got an A on that paper. <laughs> But what I had to do there is we studied the book of Philippians in Greek, and we had to go through and look at all the different variants in the book of Philippians. You had to go through and you had to look at the critical apparatus and figure out which ones made the most sense. Just to let you know, the ones that are already in the text, according to the experts, are probably the ones that make the most sense. The most reliable sources are already represented in the text itself. So this is what you do for hours and hours and hours. You look up all the variants, and then you go, yeah, the one in the text makes sense. The experts agree that's the one that makes sense. 
It's exhausting, and it's really hard, and at the end you always say the same thing. They're right, okay? So you don't need to learn textual criticism. That's what this is called. You don't need to learn it. You don't need to master this, apparatus, this critical apparatus. You never need to know it, because whether you've gone to seminary or you have a PhD, at the end of the day you say the same thing. Well, it looks like they did a pretty good job. That's probably right, okay? And that's what I said, and I got an A. All right, does that make sense? So, but I want you to know there are variants. So if somebody comes up to you and says, how can you trust it? In the same way that the Word of God was meticulously handled for decades and decades and centuries and centuries, it is still meticulously handled today. If we go to back to page 7, it says there among all the fragments there are variations. The actual number of variants in the New Testament is quite small, less than 10%, none of which call a major doctrine into question. None of which. God's still a part of this process. Not a single major doctrine has been affected or impacted from variants. Okay? All of them have been protected. The largest number of variants come from this. Misspellings. Okay? Like I can spell Matt's name M-A-T or M-A-T-T. And it's found in different fragments in different ways. There's a variant. A large portion of this critical apparatus in here is that. Not enjoyable. I mean, who cares how you spell it? Because it still says Matt at the end of the day. Uh, the other ones would be variations like this. Uh, whether somebody says a good man or the man who is good. There are variants. But at the end of the day, you know what it means. It means the good man or the man who is good. It means the same thing. Okay? Those are the large portions of variants are those types of variants. All right. Let's bump forward. Let's go to page 8. So, remember the telephone game? The older, the older the text, the more likely it's correct. All right, so I'm going to read this next session, and my goal is not to pick on any person, or to pick on your parents, or to pick on you, or to pick on churches in the area. But this is just something you should know. And if you don't agree, I'm totally fine with that. There's freedom to disagree on this next point. It says this, The King James Version was translated from a combination of only about six or seven medieval manuscripts. This right here is the 26th edition of this, and it's using thousands of manuscripts, dating back to the second century. Remember the telephone game? Second century. The King James uses ones from the medieval time period. Eighth, ninth, tenth century. Okay? So, I'm not saying it's not a decent translation, but just realize that it's being used you're using a very different Greek text to translate that into English than you're using nowadays to translate it into modern-day translations. Okay? If you were to ask me my opinion, I would find this more reliable than the text that they used. Okay? So I would feel better about that. But I've talked with people who would disagree with that, and here's usually how the conversation goes. We believe, we have faith, that God intentionally blessed that translation. There's nowhere to go with that conversation. You just say, well, good. God, okay, God bless you. There's no reason to divide over that subject. If we have people in this church that believe that, we're totally fine with that. Okay? We don't want anyone to force that on anyone else. Okay? But we're totally fine with that because we are. But I want you to know, for those of you who are trying to figure it out, I just want you to know what the conversation includes. It includes that part of the conversation. Okay? Let's move on. We're on verse, we're on page 11. Big jump, page 11. 
think we're doing well on time, so I'm going to play with something for a second. Which translation is best? So say all the translations are written from the same Greek text, but you still have multiple translations. Which translation is best? Anybody want to give an opinion? Feels like I'm going to pick on you if you give an opinion, doesn't it? Doesn't seem fair. All right, so let's just talk about translations for a second. I would argue there is no best translation, just to let you know where I'm going with it. So a translation means you're taking words from one language and you're translating them into another language. Whether it's Greek to English or Spanish to English or French to German, there's a couple things you have to consider. So here's some Spanish I'm going to throw at you. Me falta. Dos pesos. All right? If I dropped you off in Guadalajara, Mexico, and someone came up to you and said, me falta dos pesos, okay? Depending on if you went with a word-to-word -word translation of what they were saying to you, a phrase-by-phrase -phrase or a thought-by-thought, -thought, you're going to respond very differently to that person. If you are there and you pull out your dictionary and you're trying to translate each word that the person says, this is what it's going to say. I, okay, I lack two pesos. So a correct response to that might be, well, I'm sorry for your luck. <laughs> That's a really sad story, okay? So word for word would include the New American Standard. It would include like the New King James. Um, it, so that's kind of the world that that lives in. I like my New American Standard, but I realize that there's strengths and weaknesses to it. Now, if we go with more of like an NIV, ESV approach, then he's going to say something different. He's going to say, I need $2. Because that's what that phrase means. Even though falta means lack, when you say it in this way, you're basically saying, I need. Okay, I need. So now someone shows up and says, may falta dos pesos, and you're hearing, I need $2, and you're thinking, oh, it almost sounds like he wants me to help him. Okay, so we've moved forward in our understanding. Now we go down here to like the message. Have you ever read the message? No? You should read it, just for fun. Go to the Psalms. He, like, for some reason, he says stuff like, those fat cats. Like He uses that. like To put somebody down, he says, fat cats. His whole goal is to be contemporary. When was the last time you said fat cats? So I think, I think when you're 87, writing things to be contemporary, you're just in a weird world. So, and then we have the New Living Translation, which is also similar to that. So here it says, dude, give me two bucks. All right? So now you really heard what he was asking for you. When someone says, may falta dos pesos, they're looking at you saying, dude, give me two bucks. That's what it means. So in this scenario, if you had the New Living Translation in your head, in other scenarios, like if you're in the book of Romans and it's being really like, detailed in his argumentation, it's really helpful to maybe be at this level. So there's strengths and weaknesses to every translation. There is no best translation. The best thing for you is to know what kind of translation you're using and the strengths and weaknesses that go along with your translation. Before he teaches, before I teach, oftentimes we'll read this in multiple translations. And that's helpful, because we'll see it from different points of view, from different angles. It helps with Spanish, it helps with Greek, it helps with English. Okay? So that's my answer to the translations question. Let's talk about the canon. So the question is, how did we pick the books that are in here? How do we land on these 66 books? So, there is no written rule about how we pick these Old Testament books. 
a dude named Josephus, who was like a historian during the time when the Old Testament was kind of coming together and being decided, was observing the way the Jews were doing it. And he wrote a bunch of thoughts on the way the Jews were doing it. There's no reason to read these quotes, but I have them there for you for you to read them. On the next page at the top, I summarized them. Here's the four things that he said. It appears that they had, they picked books that had no contradictions. Books that were written by a prophet or someone with divine authority. Third, they're books that originated through the inspiration from God. Fourth, books that were accepted by the Jews pretty much as a whole as authoritative. So it had to meet those four qualifications to be considered one of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Okay, let's go back to page 11. So in the top right-hand corner, it talks about the rules given for the New Testament. Rules given for the New Testament. We just kind of got those out of order. No big deal. So here they are. For the New Testament, these were the rules that were used. And there were actually church... Okay, so you know what a synod is? Or a council? Like, there were times when the church leaders would get together and discuss over and over again which books should go in there. And they kind of landed on these being the ways that they made that decision. Number one, was the book written by an apostle or at least someone as a recognized authority? Two, did it agree with the canon of truth? Three, did it enjoy universal acceptance? Four, does it have a self-authenticating divine nature? Does it have a self-authenticating divine nature? Page 12 at the bottom. I want you to know this. The church didn't canonize God's word. The church's goal was just to recognize the canon of God's word. We didn't give authority to God's word. God's word had authority and we just tried to recognize it. Does that make sense? I don't want us to get that backwards. We didn't pick the books and then the books became God's word. They were God's word and God gave us the ability to recognize which ones they were. How did they come together in the New Testament? So there are a bunch of early church fathers. The disciples actually discipled people. So like John, he discipled this dude named Polycarp. Okay, and then Polycarp discipled another dude. Like, there's actually, you can see some of that with the early church fathers. And they wrote some books. Clement wrote a book. Um, most of these dudes wrote books. But they weren't put in the New Testament. They weren't put in the New Testament. Now, it doesn't mean that they're bad books. I have all these books on my shelf. They're actually really good. Charles Swindoll's written some good books, right? Charles Ryrie's written some good books. But they also don't belong in the Bible. Okay, so just because there were other books at the time doesn't mean they were bad. It's just they weren't given, they weren't considered to have divine authority. So they're nice books to have on your shelf, but they're not books that belong in the real book, the Word of God. Um, one, two, three, four. The fifth point there under New Testament, there's a dude named Athanasius. If we ever get a chance to do church history, we will spend an entire day on Athanasius. The dude was a stud. After I spend time teaching about Athanasius, you'll want to name your children, your pets, after Athanasius. He was amazing. He fought for doctrine. He fought for the deity of Christ. He fought for the deity of the Holy Spirit. And he was one of the first guys to put all these 27 books together and say, this is it. These are the books that belong, in, that belong together. And then he, along with several other people, through three different councils and synods listed in the next point, finally agreed we feel good about this. These are the 27 books of the New Testament. And they were canonized. Or they were recognized for what they were, God's word, the canon. Okay? Next page. We are doing great on time. Bible basics. Here's something that no one ever really did this for me. But after I 
started spending some time learning this, it just helped me out seeing kind of how God's Word is laid out. It helps to know how God's Word is just laid out. How many books are there? 66. Good. How many Old Testament books? I guess the answers are right in front of you, so you could all be cheating. I'm just going to choose to be proud of you. And then there's 27 in the New Testament. Uh, the way that they're lined up isn't arbitrary. It's not arbitrary. There's the historical books, or the narratives, and there's 17 of them. What comes next? Poetry. And we kind of put it all together. We put the five poetic books together. There's five of those. And next we have the prophecy. And there's 17 of those. So how is it broken up? 17, 5, 17. So when you go to the gym and you have to put that little thing on your locker, just use this. 17, 5, 17. And it'll remind you how the Old Testament is set up. This is interesting. The, these other two books right here, that is not the order they use, just so you know. Um, I think this one puts poetry at the end. All right, this one just has it completely different than the way we have it. So the order of the books, we wouldn't say is divine or inspired. The order isn't necessarily divine or inspired because each translation has a different order. Our order actually goes along with the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Old Testament, just so you know. All right, let's go a little bit deeper with this. So of the narratives, there's five that are called the Torah. What are those? Thank you. And there's 12. They're just kind of like the ongoing historical narratives after that, uh, basically up until the end of recorded Jewish history. Okay, so poetry, there's still five. Prophecy, we've got five major, and we've got five minor. Thank you. That's what I think about my next point. So, still, easy to remember, five, twelve, five, five, twelve. Is that easy to remember? 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. So that's just how it's broken up, okay? This is kind of an easy way to remember it. If you remember this, you kind of, you know what you're looking at as you're flipping through the Old Testament. Okay, so in your book, bottom of page 13, what I did here is I double-clicked on a couple of these different areas. So I double-clicked on the Torah. And right there at the bottom of 13, there's three major, like, eras in the Torah. There's creation, there's the period of the patriarchs, and then there's the Exodus. And under each one of those movements, so those periods of time, there's major events and there's major people listed. So in the creation account, and like the Genesis account, there's four major things. Creation, fall, flood, and tower. This is on the bottom of 13. You don't have to write them down. Creation, fall, flood, and tower. Main characters, you've got Adam and Eve, and Noah's a huge character. After that, we're introduced to Abraham. And it's the starting of the patriarchs. Covenant. It makes a covenant. The people of God grow in numbers, and then a famine takes place, and they end up heading to Egypt. Huge movements, huge pieces, huge events of the period of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are huge parts of this. The Exodus, you have the same thing. Multiple major things. Deliverance, law, land, and wanderings. And the major person there is Moses. Okay? Next page, 14. Let's look at that box, and let's just keep talking about this. So after we get through the Torah, they're on the edge of the Promised Land. 
What happens next? They go into the promised land. Do they succeed or do they fail? Kind of a tricky question, huh? Did they succeed or did they fail? Did they conquer the land? Like 98% of it, right? So they went in and there was conquest. They took over. So you see the Jordan. They cross the Jordan. They take over Jericho and Joshua is the leader. What was the 2% that they forgot? Do you remember? Do you guys remember? He said he basically had to move everyone out of the land. He had to wipe them all out. But they made some treaties. So the treaties led to the next phase, the judges. Because they made treaties, they began to worship the gods of the other people rather than worshiping God Almighty. Instead of worshiping Yahweh, they worshiped other gods. So then these seven cycles began. Where they'd fall into disobedience, God would punish them by bringing in another nation to overtake them. God would raise up a judge to then take back the nation, and then it all started over again. Okay, it went over and over again. Well, the Israelites figured out what the problem was. God, we don't have a king. If we only had a king, these cycles would end. We would worship you. We would know you. Everything would be fine if we just had a king. And God said, well, I'll give you the best looking guy you got. It's like six foot, six foot, six foot seven, good looking dude. Okay. And then Saul takes over as king. How'd they do? Did it fix everything? No. Oftentimes, as the kings fell away from the Lord, the, the country would fall away from the Lord. So the theme there is rebellion and then moments of renewal. Rebellion, 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 a moment of renewal. Rebellion, 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 a moment of renewal. And it ended, okay, with the exile because of destruction. God eventually says that you are, well, division is next because of the rebellion. God divides them into two nations. They continue to rebel, and God comes in and destroys. And the people are exiled to Babylon. All right, so it's kind of a sad story. There's a little bit of hope there at the end. The last phase is the return. God draws some of his people back, Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, and they begin to rebuild the walls. Okay? And that's kind of where the Old Testament starts to end and wrap up. All right? So those are the major phases of history. If you just memorize kind of those major phases, you would have a pretty good working knowledge of the Old Testament. The main characters, the main time periods, and the main events. Okay? So this is just kind of a summary of the Old Testament as a whole. Any questions on that? New Testament. There's 27 books. And like we mentioned, Matthew is not the first book written. It's just the first of the four Gospels. So the New Testament starts with four Gospels. Then it has one historical narrative, the book of Acts. Is the book of Acts, is it a set of or a series of commandments and how we have to do the church? Is it prescriptive? Is it how church is supposed to be done? How it was done. So it means it was descriptive, not prescriptive. Prescriptive means you have to do it this way. Descriptive means it's just it's a history of what was done. Okay? So throughout the book of Acts, there's periods where God might command them to do something a certain way, or something might happen a certain way, but it's not necessarily the way we're supposed to do church from that moment until Jesus comes back. Okay, so it's descriptive. Um, but it's a record of the apostles and Paul slowly going to all nations, starting Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, going to all nations. And then Paul writes the next 13 epistles. 
Paul writes 13 of them. 10 of them are like general epistles to churches. Three of them are written to pastors. Timothy, Timothy, and then Titus. Timothy, Timothy, and then Titus. And there's eight general epistles. Uh, each of them are written to very different circumstances and situations. Okay? Different circumstances and different situations. There's a lot of suffering going on. There's um, periods where basically they're being attacked as the church, and the writer of Hebrews and the writer of and first, and Peter writes into those moments of persecution and suffering. Uh, so we have the eight general epistles, then it ends with some apocalyptic literature, which is the book of Revelation. And just so you know, during that time period, there were lots of apocalypses that were written. It wasn't just Revelation. It wasn't like a new form of literature. Like, during that time, there were lots of them. We don't see them nowadays. You won't find one on the bookshelf. You can go to Amazon. You're not going to find the latest apocalypse. Uh, well, maybe. You watch The Walking Dead. So, I mean, maybe there's some version of a zombie apocalypse. But, like, during that day, there were different ways of writing about the end of days. Okay, and this was the one that we believe was ordained by God. All right? Written by John himself, an apostle. So, this is the word of God that he's given us. This is a basic overview of it. All right? We still got at least 90 seconds. Do you have any questions about anything we covered tonight? We covered a lot, didn't we? Did the variations freak any of you out? Or did you handle it okay? The variations don't mean that it's not God's word. Okay? It is God's word. If, what I've always wondered, and you, you talked about the order that our translation uh, books, what I've always wondered, and we believe that God is in control of all things, I believe that, that was, Bill Tanzio said, don't start a church on this, but I've always believed that the way that our translation is ordered, maybe not inspired to be in that order, but a purpose for that order, and when you when you look at that, look at these blocks, it, it's almost like, I think God created, I know that God created music. Hmm. And you can almost, when you went to those blocks, you could almost hear like a, a, a symphony hmm. playing up and down and quiet times. And, and, and I think the, the way that our, our scriptures are ordered, even though not inspired by God, may very well please God in the way that hmm. our, our scriptures are ordered in the way we know them. That's good, Bob. That's good, Bob. Anything else real quick? I can't believe it was explained that well, but uh, you can go back and look through your book. There's more information in there than I talked through tonight. Uh, that's going to be true throughout all the books always. I just write lots of information and can barely cover them within an hour. That's just the way I do it. Um, let me pray for us, and then you're out. Father, thank you for each and every person here. Uh, cause this week to be a week where we walk deeply with you in your word. Uh, may we have faith in you, and may we have faith in the words that you've written. You are an awesome God, and it's so fun just to walk our life with you through the ups and through the downs. May you use classes like this to grow us, cause us to worship, cause us to become deeper in community and to belong, and call us into service. We ask that in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>